Hello, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and you are listening to part one of a special podcast episode called The Minstrel, the Painter, and the Scholar, a roundtable discussion with John Bartolo, Ted Naismith, and Corey Olson. John, Ted, and I are all lovers of Tolkien who are engaged in interpreting his work in different ways. John Bartolo is the singer and songwriter for the Lonely Mountain Band, who have recently released a new album of Tolkien-inspired music titled Beyond the Western Seas. Ted Naismith is one of the most celebrated Tolkien illustrators in the world, and his paintings have appeared in Tolkien calendars and illustrated editions of the texts. I, Corey Olson, am a literary scholar and host of a podcast featuring lectures and academic discussions of Tolkien's books. Recently, the three of us thought it would be fun to get together by Skype and have a conversation about what we do in our different spheres as we interact with the books that we all love and admire. So my first question uh, was for John, and my question was, when you're writing songs, how do you relate to Tolkien's own songs and poetry? Do you, do you consciously try to emulate or even distance yourself from the tone and style of his various poems? Because, of course, he has different different feels and, and uh, uh, you know, different modes for his, you know, different characters and situations. How do you kind of place yourself against all that when you're writing? Well, specifically with this album, because there are uh, some tracks on the CD... Uh, that we were specifically drawn from Tolkien's lyrics um, and poems that appear in the books, I tried to, um, for, well, for myself, I tried to, I tried to hear in the poetry itself um, what Tolkien was trying to get across as far as the mood. Uh, mood is, I, I would imagine, most important to me as far as trying to relay what the poem is saying in terms of music. Obviously, uh, if, if the mood of the music is out of sync with the content of the poem, it could create some sort of, you know, dissonance as far as what the listener is feeling. So for myself, um, and specifically with Tolkien's own lyrical content, 
you know, whatever feelings uh, Tolkien's poem ev- evokes in me is what I try to translate to the guitar. And specific- specifically with this album, it was acoustic guitar. So that was the driving instrument on this album. So, uh, for example, Lament of Errol the Young. Um, right. There is a, there is a real... Uh, and, 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 of course, that uh, Lament of Errol the Young draws heavily upon the Wanderer poem. Um, so the sentiment in that... Uh, and that poem for me was one of uh, passing and one of uh, lamentation so to me that song is really a lamentation so I try to um, identify uh, with that with that sentiment in the song and in my voice and and the way I sang the lyrics Uh, with a song like Song of Durin's Awakening that was a little different in that the arrangement of that song was inspired by a version done by Colin John Rudd, um, who posted his version of Song of Durin's Awakening on YouTube, and that was a catalyst and an inspiration for me to to do that song myself, and pretty much use his general arrangement as far as the cadence of the lyrics and everything, but I just brought the, pr- the production to uh, as high a level as I could possibly do, uh, including, you know, emulating dwarven chants in the background, the Baruch Kazad chant, mm-hmm. and anvil sounds. So with that song, it was really about transporting the listener to Middle-earth as much as I possibly could with sound effects and dwarven chanting and and really trying to relay the the passing glory of, of, uh, of Moria. So, uh, and then the other, the, the other one, Fall of Gilgalad, I... I kind of had a different take on Fall of Gilgalad. It was more of like a nursery rhyme um, sentiment for me. Um, hmm. And not so much, you know, the, in, in the story, it's a fragmentary poem. They allude to the fact that this is from a longer lay that is now right. missing. And, and uh, the, the, you know, just that fragment remains. <clears throat> I believe Bill, actually, I believe Bilbo... Uh, interpreted that and then wrote the fall of Gilgalad in the story of the book. And, uh, so that was, I didn't, I didn't feel so much lamentation of that. It was more of a, of a heroic, um, of a heroic piece for me that lent itself to a nursery rhyme. I don't know why it just, it just came out that way. So there is some different, uh, method of interpretation, but I take it song by song. Um, I think that answered the question. Yeah, do you do you do you catch yourself um trying to emulate or echo any of his <clears throat> sort of uh, lyrics or poetical moves when you're when you're composing your own um like like the the lyrics for the Ballad of Iglos for instance, do you do you find yourself um kind of slipping into it or or or, or deliberately imitating um any of the uh, the meters or the uh the word choice in his existing poetry? Well, um, it, I think it's unconscious uh, if I, you know, right. the emulation becomes unconscious because I'm so into the Tolkien mode, quote unquote, as far as when I'm writing right. that material. And I'm probably at that time when I'm writing either coming from the text or some other media related to Tolkien. So I do try to put myself, <clears throat> you know, in his chair, so to speak. And uh, as far as poetry is concerned, you know, I really identify with the way he writes. So 
I think just you know through osmosis is it's become an unconscious um, way of writing, I guess, the poetry and the Ballad of Iglos specifically uh, was was for me a really great accomplishment. Um, I really enjoyed trying to put myself in a personified sphere. You know, it's 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 kind of like that northern. Um, idea of of an item or a weapon a weapon having having its own personality so yeah. um i tried to think that you know the 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 starting point for for that song for me was okay i, I know i'm going to write a song called the ballad of iglos which actually i must say the title the ballad of iglos comes from lord of the rings online there's a quest that minstrels need to go on in the game and you've got to go find these different uh, fragmentary pieces within within the game. And then when you have all these fragmentary parts together, you're, you then can compose the Ballad of Iglos. So that was my initial cue. And I, that, that name, the title, just really grabbed me. And then I began researching the Spear Iglos. And I thought, wow, it would be really interesting to trace any record in the, in the writings, in the lore... Of wherever uh, Gilgalad might have taken Iglos with him, <clears throat> so it was written from the perspective of Iglos. Yeah, that's neat. It actually, it's a, uh, it's interesting. It's been making me think as uh, as I've been listening to your CD. I'm also teaching my Anglo-Saxon class, and there are a couple poems that we've been reading. Uh, one Beowulf, and the other, uh, the Dream of the Rood, which mm. the Dream of the Rood is told almost entirely from the perspective of an inanimate object. Right, the Dream of the Rood is the crucifixion story told from the perspective of the cross. And my students and I were really struck by the way in which the poet personifies. Uh, the object and sort of retells the story from from its perspective and we were just also reading in Beowulf uh, the description of the fight between Beowulf and Grendel uh, and there's this wonderful moment in the middle of the fight right before Grendel's arm gets ripped off where the fight is essentially told for a few lines from the point of view of the hall itself of of Heorot and how it, it, the, the fight begins to be briefly characterized almost as Beowulf and Grendel against the hall as of course they're you know, running around and smashing things. Um, but we get this brief sort of glimpse of almost empathy with the hall and its perspective itself. So I, I think that that, uh, it, it was just a, sort of a neat combination of things, uh, for me recently because I think that that, that, that idea of writing a song from Aglos the Spear's perspective seems sort of very right. Like very, the, 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 the very kind of thing that I think Tolkien would have been really interested in. It's exactly what, uh, as you mentioned before, a lot of, um, like, Anglo-Saxon and Norse uh, poetry is already interested in, and I think that that's uh, that's really neat. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah, it's def it's definitely a northern sentiment as far as the personification of of weapons, and you know we've seen it now in fantasy so much. You know, with Stormbringer and uh, some of the Michael Moorcock sure. stories and other stories. Now it's become popularized, but I think you know I don't know. It may be it may be uh, present in other cultures too. But as far as I know, it's really prominent in that, you know, northern warrior spirit. But, yeah, thank you. That's cool. Yeah. Ooh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's just uh, very well observed. Right, well, Ted, I have uh, my, my, my question for you. Um, in, your, in your artwork, what have you found hardest to capture uh, about Tolkien's world? Um, what kinds of things have you just found really most challenging to do? Well, I mean, there's also a lot of things that um, one is confronting there. And, uh, you know, sort of it's hard to think about what it felt like early on when I was just trying to uh, 
you know, come to grips with those things, uh, whether it was uh, epic scenes of battle and uh, costumes that might be used in, in a world like Tolkien's. I mean, I tended to make things a little harder for myself by thinking um, Middle-earth is, although it's similar to, say, medieval uh, Europe or uh, prehistory in other ways, um, it seems to be, and in the late Victorian, uh, sort of mid-Victorian sort of society in, in the Shire, all these various kinds of levels of time frames uh, kind of right. blended together uh, in, a, in a sort of rough mix in a way, because Tolkien is kind of making it up as he goes along himself, and uh, you know, if you know the writing process there. So uh, you, you try to sort of uh, bring some uh, intelligence, and, uh, and like for me... Uh, that sense of otherness that he describes, I think, uh, in some ways when he refers to his work, um, you know, leaving things to the imagination, um, the sense that you're peering into a lost time. Um, so how to uh, make it explicit and ex explore it um, in that sort of wonderful way, uh, bring it alive, but at the same time not have it, um, you know, you be, become too habituated to it or or it becomes too real so that it does remain um, mysterious and remote and uh, and and sort of uh, has that sort of mystique about it uh, i mean to me fantasy by by definition it, it involves you know some sort of a strange tension between um, imagination and reality uh, story um, impressions um, and with tolkien's being so detailed and explicit in one sense and yet it seems to hold back at the same time um, it's sort of a tantalizing thing um, now he is not around of course and as an illustrator there are many times and I would have liked to have him to at least ask a question of or consult like those fortunate people who were able to write letters to him during his lifetime and have him answer right. some, sometimes at quite great length uh, um, details of, of what he meant by this or that uh, part of his legendarium or his story or what this person or character might have uh, you know been been about and, and all that sort of thing so um, you have to kind of imagine the, the dialogue with him um, I, I kind of play this I guess sort of game with myself where you know I, I think of like if he had assigned me to you know render his world in more visual terms uh, to bring it more to life in that sort of that way in that particular art uh, discipline um, you know words versus visual then uh, you know how would I do that authentically um, but not you know, give up my own sense of what the interpretation, I mean, you can't get away from that. I'm the one doing it, so it's going to, whether I'm consciously doing it or not, reflect my own reaction to Tolkien or why I connect to it. And I guess I've found that when I've been asked, you know, this kind of thing in the past, I, I, don't, I don't know, it's just a, a sense that it is part of me, and I think other people say the same kind of thing. That, so you're, you're going into yourself, but at the same time taking something in, in from outside. It's kind of a, you know, a paradoxical uh, kind of phenomenon. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's hard to capture that balance between what he's, his suggestiveness and the very explicitness of his uh, descriptions. I'm not sure I always trust those explicit descriptions, 
I mean, even he says, you know, uh, everyone sees a hill or a river or a, a, a mountain or, or a sky in, in a kind of a particular way that means something to them, and yet there are common threads too. And so, um, like, what has inspired me and encouraged me so much is that I have received so often the comment that I somehow knew it was inside someone else's head. So I guess as an illustrator, I must be tapping in fairly well to the Tolkien sort of thing that he's tapping into himself. Um, he's just re reflecting it, maybe passing it on, not uh, coming up with it originally. So it's, uh, yeah, it's this uh, sort of paradoxical thing that, you know, it, and it's because it's kind of intriguing and exciting, um, you continually want to go back and, you know, experience it again and, and see what you can do this time and whether, you know, it works or out or not. And I try not to, you know, stretch too far <laughs> because, you know, that, you know, well, failures are have their place too, but, you know, but yeah, it, it, I think the fact that it's so incredibly challenging and, and difficult to, to me, reach what I am aiming for, I never quite get there uh, fully uh, that, you know, and that's a good thing <laughs> that it just kind of keep me, uh, keep me going, fascinates me so much uh, you know, what it is uh, that you know, it is in Tolkien that drives a person like me to, uh, put out illustration after illustration. You know, I've lost count now. Now, oh, that's great. It, it is such a difficult thing. You know, when I think of the things that Tolkien said about, um, you know, the, the, the passage that you were alluding to from on fairy stories about, you know, the different pictures that people have in, in their own heads about things, you know, an author can say, can just say the word bread and leave it at that. And that will create different images and different concepts in people's mind. But when you render something visually, you, you fix it. Um, mm. and, and I think that the, it's such a, it's such a big challenge because there's so many different things that you're dealing with. It's not just you and the text, you know, it's not just sort of you and Tolkien in dialogue. It's like you in dialogue with Tolkien and all of your, uh, your, your, your audience <laughs> as well, you know, and, right, and, right. and, and dealing with all of their dialogues with Tolkien as well. And so it's such right. a, I mean, I think that the, 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 the success that you've had is really remarkable. I know there are certainly, uh, several of your paintings, you know, that I have looked at and had exactly that experience that you described, you know, of like, yeah, yeah that's, that's exactly it. That is exactly, you know, uh, what, how I have always, uh, pictured it. And I think that that's, Thanks. um, you're right about that kind of tapping into something. I mean, it does seem to sort of suggest that there is, you know, there's something out there, um, which, you know, we are all sort of collectively tapping into. Well, you know, creating artwork and or composing music, as John would attest, is, you know, a fundamentally narcissistic exercise. We have to, you know, kind of <laughs> sort of be, be kind of plain about that. Um, but, you know, it's, like I can't have all those crowded views or wonder what the people's opinion might might be while I'm in the process of just being inspired. I just kind of go with the flow on that and uh, and and you know just get this wonderful feeling like oh you know this is going to be just a lot of fun to just uh, see where this goes and you kind of just know when you're in that little zone where you know it's just flowing, it's coming out. You're getting like oh yeah, I didn't realize oh this could you know kind of visually sort of be a metaphor for what's in, in implied in the words and, uh, and it could kind of bring a, a bit of new depth or amplify it a little bit more. Um, and, and so just because of that sort of relationship you're having with uh, what you perceive as Tolkien's kind of intent or you know, what, what he's moving you emotionally, uh, you know, these different levels that you're kind of worried, uh, experiencing and working with. Uh, and then, 
if you're, I think, true to that uh, sort of sort of space that you're in, then um, it's it's fairly certain that uh, someone will kind of pick up on it outside, and then that sort of takes care of itself. Yeah, on, on that track, I would I would add something that, uh, you know, especially with Tolkien's material, you know, people who are really uh, into the material, Tolkien enthusiasts, they know when somebody's faking it. So, you know, <clears throat> I know for a fact that Ted is a big fan of Tolkien himself. So it it's almost like he was just saying, it becomes an, it really becomes an unconscious effort. And, it, and there's bound to be people who identify with your interpretation of Middle Earth the same way that you do. So if you're really into the material, um, you're going to find people who identify with your mm-hmm. perspective. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I was told once, you know, I should, you should paint angels. <laughs> There's money, <laughs> money to be made. <laughs> yes, but I, I would just hate every minute of it. And I think, that, I mean, as a commercial artist, I know how to paint pictures, whether I care about what I'm doing or not. You just have to you just have that discipline. But, uh, you know, there's a point where, no, um, you know, it would be just, it was just sheer misery. <laughs> uh, that's good. You should paint angels. <laughs> well, then you should say, well, no, I paint the Valar. <laughs> that's right. Oh, now we're talking. Yeah, the, those angels. Okay, the Meyer. <laughs> yeah, I have a question for you, John. Um, what fascinates you most about Tolkien and his fantasy? Just wanted to start with that. Well, I think that's a two-part question. I think what fascinates me most about Tolkien is the is what is the art that came out of his life, you know, knowing his biography and his his early griefs and hardships of losing both parents and you know being raised by a ward by a priest and uh, and and pretty much spending his whole life. Um, entrenched in in scholastic pursuits and his absolute love for those scholastic uh, uh, pursuits Um, you know his love of language and really like you know his language was a new language to him was like a fine wine or some some new sweet uh, you know some new piece of candy or something like that to me that's just amazing that that's a really rare thing for somebody to be so deeply in love with with language like that I think it's and, rare for us to know about it. Actually, is probably more the, the right. Case yeah, thing. exactly. It's just all toge- It's altogether a, a rare, uh, a rare occurrence, and uh, it's inspiring to see that his specific love of a certain area in his scholastic pursuits is what was the seed for his whole mythology. Right. Um, you know that um, that you know he created his mythology as a bed <laughs> for his languages. Exactly. Which, you know, which is, I think, you know, when people find that out, they're just completely wowed and amazed right. that, you know, he was so dedicated uh, right. and, and obsessed really with um, bringing this uh, mythology to life. So th- that's what amazed me most about Tolkien, the man. And, uh, you know, on, on the flip side of that, it, it's amazing to see that the struggles he went through in, in actually publishing it and, and wondering whether or not it was worthwhile. Right. right. <laughs> because obviously, you know, on, on the other end of all this, many years have passed, look at the three of us uh, so so uh, deeply entrenched in, 
in uh, in our careers and in our, our artistic pursuits dealing with his material if he could have only known it's probably better that he didn't know uh, mm-hmm. um, in some ways maybe but so to me the the man himself is is really his life story is as far as I'm concerned worthy of a of a, of a quality movie um, I agree. Why haven't we had a movie about Tolkien? Yeah, uh, well, I'm sure there's scripts out there getting turned down left and right. <laughs> well, I remember why it's the Tolkien estate. <laughs> right. <laughs> killed everything. Right. So, so we, we yeah, made... It is, it is a little bit hard to imagine them permitting that film to go on. At this oh. point, yeah. I think at some point we may see something. Uh, and, and you know what? On, on, on that track, uh, why haven't we seen a great movie about the Inklings? Well, exactly. You know, um, yeah, we got the there was there was the that the one C.S. Lewis movie, The Shadowlands, a while back, right? Which was, was a great movie. That was a nice movie. Yeah, that was a little bit of something on that right. One. It was it was uh, a little a little taste of that, but I think because of the players you have involved in the Inklings, you could really have quite a fantastic movie um, that would draw upon you know the whole Lord of the Rings crowd as well as the C.S. Lewis crowd. And and even you know some of the lesser known names involved in the Inklings. Um, yes, exactly. Um, but so that's Tolkien the man. And then quickly, um, what engaged me about his work? Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think just briefly, um, I, I his work, his mythology, um, you know, and this has been analyzed up and down. Um, I enjoy his mythology so much because I believe it's such a true mirror of the of the real world that we live in. But in fantastical terms, mm-hmm. um, and um, we can, you know, vicariously live through his mythology and uh, p- apply it to the struggles that we go through in life. Um, so, you know, and Tolkien himself would have said this, you know, in 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 some of his works, like on fairy stories, and you can much more uh, deeply analyze reality through fantasy, and uh, and in a much more um, appealing way as well, so yeah, that uh, those two things I think are what, what what drew me in, and and I was drawn in from a young age. So it was mm-hmm. something I I imagine I would say it was something spiritually uh, that I identified with Tolkien the man and Tolkien his works. Yeah, I, would, I was going to say, yeah, that's a great answer. Yeah, well, you know, and I think there are a couple of BBC um, you know one hour programs on this stuff too. There, but, but of course we're we're not party to that. Usually we don't kind of get that stuff over here normally. Uh, right. I think. Well, I think a dram- a dramatic um, a dramatic representation of Tolkien's life uh, is so chock full of events and concepts. You know, you've got World War One, you've got <clears throat> so many political elements of that time of, of of his even his early childhood things that were going on there's so many elements that you could explore in a dramatic uh hollywood movie on on tolkien the man uh mm-hmm. it's so ripe and uh and fertile for a really quality movie that uh, it's amazing that nobody has has been able to you know wh- whatever it takes fork up the cash or or know the right mm-hmm. people to get a movie of that of that kind done Right, and given the number of books that have been coming out, especially since the films were popular and the recognition that this is a massive market worldwide and everything, you know, it's really pretty unique. Um, you know that. Well, there would have to be uh, a lot of interest in uh, other kinds of uh, projects like that. Uh, I mean, I know that <laughs> there was a 
I mean, writing encyclopedias on Tolkien is very hard for anyone to do that without the Tolkien estate's cooperation or the publishers, and yet uh, some people have gone to great lengths to just, you know, for instance, just create a massive resource for all things Tolkien, and then found, you know, to their frustration that uh, publishers and the, uh, the estate lawyers and others just, you know, well, they're pretty much indifferent. You know, too bad. Uh, you could. And there was a, a whole set of operas written as well, you know, an English composer. Um, what was his name now? Um, Paul Godfrey. Uh, he did get uh, um, Christopher Tolkien's um, approval on that one, but you know, it would be so expensive to stage those things. But it would be interesting. I mean, it would probably be enough interest now for that to be possible. Um, although, you know, the musical didn't do so well uh, for one reason or another. I think it's really hard to do a big budget stage musical like that. That's just a, a hard uh, a hard uh, proposition to make good on, I think. Right. Mm, definitely was risky, uh, but I can tell you, I saw the production on opening week here in Toronto before they actually made a few of the changes, and I was blown away. I was just really, really impressed. And, you know, you come in, you have to expect that they're going to make editorial changes um, to the story. They're going to cut out certain parts of it. But they did preserve the, you know, the, the, the mood and the spirit of it uh, in, in every way that I think you know, there really was um, a tremendous amount of um, heartfelt uh, effort in there. I, I actually thought some of the musical numbers reached dramatic heights that the film didn't. There was such an immediacy there. Then I got to see it again in London uh, the next year, um, and they had made a number of changes, tweaked the show, etc., and added uh, some parts that uh, weren't in before. Um, and anyway, it was just to me, both times it succeeded beautifully um, for me. Um, and I know others felt the same. I, I went out and got you know ordered the soundtrack and all that too because I just. Uh, I love the kind of the way they just portrayed certain things. And, and it does lend itself to staging in the fact that it's a heroic story so that it kind of takes its place with opera. You know, my, you might say like Wagner, like how could anyone sit through six hours or whatever of, of one of these, these grand programs? But it is possible to do this stuff. Uh, it just depends on whether the audience is, um, you know, kind of in the right space for it. Uh, you had those films coming out, and they're the obvious comparison. That was one of the problems, too, I think. But uh, I, I'm one of those people who support the musical. I'd like to see it resurrected. Well, that's I interesting. Think... I, I, I had never seen it. Uh, and the clips that I that I did see of it weren't that appealing to me. But, of course, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't see it as a whole piece of art. Mm -hmm. So, well, that's interesting. I'd like to see, I, I wonder if, I, if, uh, if it's available on, uh, if it's ever been filmed and, and put to DVD. I don't know if there's anything like that available either. It would be good. I think I don't know why they're not avail making that available, actually. But I think Michael Theriot's uh, portrayal of Gollum was just brilliant, brilliant uh, physical uh, work. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they, they kind of made you forget that, uh, you know, the actors who were playing Hobbits weren't uh, any less tall than the other actors. Uh, there was just a number of things that somehow they must have succeeded uh, because it just created a total world on, on a stage with... Uh, you know, with only the resources available in a theater like that. Wow, that's amazing! I'd like I'd like to uh, be able to see that. Mm -hmm, yeah, I feel like some people missed out because it was kind of bad press going around. But the critics were, you know, as usual, they're, they're pretty savage with these things. And uh, well, we we know that some things that we take for granted as being incredibly important works now were panned at the time they first were performed, uh, including some of you know, like the Magic Flute or one of the Mozart. Uh, because we watched Amadeus recently, and, and, uh, <laughs> you 
you know, it's never a given. The, the original showing of something might just be an absolute disaster, but then, uh, you know, it start, starts to get get to word of mouth and, and whatever. Someone restages it, and suddenly it's the right time, the right place or something. Well, how about just what would your dream project be, uh, Dr. Olson, and why? Well, that's a that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think that, you know, in some ways my dream project is kind of the one that I'm doing is sort of the reason I'm doing it <laughs> because it was right. my dream project. I mean, I, the thing that I most love to do is, you know, I think of as a, as an academic, you know, and, and I'm still comparatively new at the academic thing. I've only been, it was only seven years ago, I got my PhD and, um, you know, as a, as a young professor, you know, the main thing that everybody tells you, you know, that the, the two primary things that you're focusing on in your academic life are your teaching and your scholarship. And, and these two things are always, you know, they're basically, they're kept in completely separate buckets. You know, the, the time is different. And then the concept is that these are just totally, in many ways, totally different things. You've got your esoteric scholarship that you work on essentially really only for a, the benefit of other scholars. I mean, there's almost no even expectation, uh, you know, unless you happen to be some kind of obscure superstar or happen to work in a field which other people are interested in, um, that anyone else is going to read what you write or be interested in what you do or say other than other people in your field. Um, and then, of course, there's the teaching. Then there's the version of it that you give to, you know, the the small group of 18 to 22-year-old people who are sitting in your classes. And, you know, I've just sort of been increasingly frustrated by the compartmentalizing of things and by the parochial focus of academia, um, right. the way in which we don't, I mean, so basically there, there, there are kind of two acceptable audiences for the work that I do. Either, you know, the, you know, I teach at a small school, so my classes are small. So for me, it's, you know, I've, I, I can either focus on the 25, 18 to 22 year olds who happen to be sitting in that room that I'm supposed to go teach in, or I can focus on, you know, <laughs> what feels like an approximately equal size number of other scholars out there who are going to be interested in what I'm saying. I mean, the circulation for scholarly journals and scholarly monographs and stuff like that is very small. I mean, we're usually talking at most hundreds of copies, not thousands. And right. so there's a really small, there's, there's a really small audience out there. And basically I've been sort of increasingly frustrated with that and thinking, you know, it would be, you know, basically starting first with the premise, I think there are lots of people out there who would be really interested in actually getting into a discussion about this, you know, where I could sort of take both the stuff that I do in the classroom and the stuff that I would do for publication and really just bring it to a wider audience and have a broader conversation involve, you know, the other 99.99% of the population or at least mm -hmm. make it available to the other, mm -hmm. to the rest of them and really expand it rather than just like my undergrad students and, and a select group of other scholars. And so that's basically why I started my podcast. And as I've been working on it and I've been, you know, sort of developing new things and doing, you know, kind of experimenting with new stuff as I've been going along, it's all really sort of focused on that, on that, uh, you know, on that one central idea. Now that's kind of, that's kind of broad, you know, for me from the beginning, it's been Tolkien specific because that was sort of my, my, my primary passion. And, and also the, the, uh, you know, a conversation that, of course, I was sort of figuring there would be a lot of people who would want to get involved in right away. Of course, I have sort of uh, 
you know, subversive ideas that after a while, you know, after I've been having these conversations with Tolkien with a lot of people for a while and getting a lot of people engaged and interested in this, that sometime in the future I shall shift gears on them and also start talking about Chaucer and Sir Thomas Mallory and uh, many of the other authors that I that I that I really love. Um, you which promise perhaps... you wouldn't talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like I'm just it's just like I'm sort of lulling people into complacency, and then pretty soon I'm going to be springing Middle English on them before they before they realize it. Um, but no, I mean you know, and I th- I just think because I there, there are. I just think there's so many opportunities and it's so the, 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 the narrowness of the scope of academic endeavor in general has just, it just seems to me really silly. And I, and I think, you know, maybe it used to have to be that way, you know, maybe, but I, but it doesn't anymore, you know, and especially with new technology and, and, you know, with, with the ways in which you can very easily make connections with people over the internet and, and really find people and have meaningful exchanges and discussions. I've just, I've been really enjoying that. So for me, you know, as a, as a teaching project, as a scholarly project, I really see it as both. I mean, I, I, it's another thing, you know, conversations that I've had with, with colleagues here and even with my dean here, um, and they still see, okay, you know, well, obviously teaching and scholarship is different. So, you know, they understand that I'm doing this podcast and they understand that I'm, you know, I'm talking about Tolkien with lots of people and, you know, different of different ages and around the world and stuff like that. But basically they still clearly categorize this as, okay, what you're doing, though, that's the teaching category, right? You're, what you're doing isn't real scholarship, you know, the kind of thing that you would publish yeah. uh, in journals. And, and what I've been contending all along is no. I mean, you know, when I do things like my Hobbit lecture series and stuff, I'm – you know, I'm not, you know, when I do my podcast, I, my intention is I, I never dumb it down. You know, that I, for me, mm-hmm. there's no distinction between, oh, like sophisticated and esoteric things I would only say to other scholars and, you know, and not to like, you know, the general common people out there. Yeah. I just, to me, I don't, I, that doesn't make any sense. And I think that if you right. can, you know, if you have things to say about, about, you know, books as a, as a, you know, as a, as a literary, you know, analyst, uh, as I am, I mean, if there are things that I would want to say that I would want to publish in Tolkien studies or that I would want to publish in, you know, the Chaucer review or whatever, um, I should be able to say them in such a way that, 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 that anyone could understand it. Like what's, that's, that's a rhetorical choice. That's not a, that's not an intellectual choice. And so for me, I, I, I want to combine those two things. So with Tolkien, it's been kind of, you know, that's why that's, one of the reasons I, I, you know, I chose Tolkien first is that this has sort of been my dream, you know, that being able to, um, to have these kinds of conversations, being able to sort of share my own love for Tolkien and, and, and the, you know, the, the things that I see in his stories that make them so exciting for me to think about and to be able to share those with other people. I mean, as the reason I, I am an academic at all, the reason I got into teaching was because of you know, my, my love to, to share this stuff with people. So being able to do that with more people and with a broader selection of people all over the place, uh, right. it has been, it has been really cool. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, it's a very dynamic situation when you think about it because your, uh, your sort of focus is on a, another professor, um, a man who balanced, um, you know, his ability to communicate with ordinary people, you know, via uh, this concept of a hobbit and, and its culture uh, and, and the stories and all of the rest of it, you know, and this sort of love of stories and adventure and, and you know, this, this, this kind of basic 
passion he had uh, for that, uh, as well as, you know, the rigorous disciplines of linguistics and, and philology and English literature and, and the sort of high-minded things of that kind as well. I mean, and, and, and we know he was one unbelievably deep person. So, uh, yeah, yes. I can imagine him being an like, incredibly interesting uh, subject uh, of, of, of almost endless study as well, and yet... Uh, because uh, he has this yes. kind of reputation as being this you know, children's author, you know how, how limiting is that? You know, well, what, what was uh, the author of Lewis Carroll was a mathematician, but you know, like, like he's just a children's author, though. You know, so, like people just want to put these things in a little right. box, and it's so silly. It must be really frustrating. That would have been a good question. For yeah, me. I feel that there's a certain amount of prejudice attending on this stuff. So I know that's been a problem for oh, others, man. Yeah. like Jane Chance or others who tried to, uh, you know, put it on the syllabus. Uh, no, definitely. I mean, there's definitely there have definitely been issues with that. I mean, it's um, it's interesting. In fact, I, I find it to be a really fascinating kind of cultural phenomenon. I mean, the the and I'd have to say almost mindless reaction that people have a sort of mindless antipathy that people have to fantasy work in general. Um, mm-hmm. And I say, I, I mean, I say mindless. I can't think of any other way to describe it. I, I've never heard an argument against it. Right. Um, right. You know, it's like every, you know, so many people just simply assume, not only assume that it, the argument doesn't need to be made, but the kind of derision, which just mm-hmm. immediately <laughs> comes in. I mean, people are, um, uh, sort of assume not only that it's a given that you know fantasy literature is not real literature and 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 you know is less worthy than others, but that anyone who says who suggests contrary is sort of you know opening themselves to obvious ridicule. I mean, it's it, it just it, I find it really striking. I find there are very few other things um, of which that's true. I mean, you can you can study almost anything you want. Um, in today's academia, and it's fine. I mean, you know, if I wanted to say, you know, I'm going to write a book on, you know, like some kind of really obscure um, uh, branch of, you know, like some some like really, I, I don't know, some like really tawdry kind of 19th century popular magazine or something like that right. for which there's no literary claim at all, right? right. But if I want to say I want to study that, well, that's interesting. You know, then then I could, you know there there's like a whole school of thought which talks about how interesting things like that are. But if I want to say I you know I want to study fantasy literature, people look at me funny. I mean, it's like you can, um, it's just it's very it's very it is very I find it odd. I said it's there's some kind of I haven't yet really figured it out, but there's some kind of cultural phenomenon there. I don't know what it is, but right, it's, right. it's it is uh, it is very deeply ingrained. I agree, and I, that I find it odd as well. But. I've thought about the phenomenon quite a bit, and to me, I actually appreciate the phenomenon because for me, it's very telling of where the society is at, to to not be able to embrace imagination and celebrate it, I think is very telling of the current state, Uh, and maybe maybe it's always been this way uh, with... with, uh, Humanity in general, I guess you could say. Well, we know but, Tolkien encountered it too, that kind of prejudice where his, you know, his fellow professors sort of turned up their nose at a man who would be a popular author. Well, you know, that brings disrepute onto us, doesn't it? And right. We, you know, the, the, the ivory tower right. is, uh, you know, <laughs> not safe with this guy in here. Right. Well, I think there's a certain right. sense, right. especially in the modern age, of a repudiation of anything that's not specifically scientifically backed. 
um, as far as is is being worthy of study. Yeah. If it doesn't, if it doesn't, if it's not scientifically backed, or if it doesn't earn you a lot of money, uh, there there seems to be a, some some sort of aversion towards it. And uh, you know, obviously, we know that that's a shame because uh, the the imagination and and um, you know reflection upon yourself through fantasy and through imagination is so important to the human soul. Um, I think it's rather telling uh, of of the current status of things that there is that actual aversion, whether it be in the scholastic level uh, or or just in in some area of the general populace that. Well, that's just stupid stuff. It's just kids' tales. What are you dealing with that for? Uh, but uh, you know, the fact that it's there, I think, is tell is telling to us who appreciate it, and I think we can probably suspect why it's there. Mm-hmm. Well, and we wouldn't yeah. want it to but be it's too it's easy. <laughs> Heaven forbid it would be too easy. Right. Well, to, I mean, uh... it, yeah. It seems tinged with almost a kind of anxiety, you know, like, I, oh, it, it almost sounds like fear at times. The, 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 the particular emphasis of the knee-jerk reaction against it or the, the sort of inexplicable fervor of its condemnation. Um, right. at least that's kind of how it seems among mm-hmm. academics. I mean, the- it arouses terrible fear, I suspect. <laughs> I would agree because I think people who do not identify with it or, or scoff at it, have that certain sense of why do you enjoy that? And because they don't understand how they themselves uh, don't enjoy it, so that would that would bring up the feelings of fear or anxiety because they don't understand it. Oscar Wilde, <laughs> you want to be in society, uh, he would t- say, but uh, but on the other hand, you know, who would want to be rubbing shoulders with these these uh, snobs at the same time. He, he was ambivalent about this kind of thing. It's been commented on a lot. And Tolkien's, you know, own hobbits, you know, well, they're queer folk over in that other valley there across the river there. <laughs> <laughs> so we, right. I think we just have to sort of fight these things through. Unfortunately, it's kind of waxes and wanes, and it's, it's a bit of a comedy, of course, and you have to just kind of expect it most of the time. You know, you're not going to get it delivered on a platter. Uh, you're going to have to fight for credibility. And I mean, ask Professor Shippey, uh, who, who's been speaking on this kind of thing for a, for a long time now. You know, he's, he doesn't suffer fools gladly, and he just welcomes these kinds of lame criticisms of Tolkien, which are completely uninformed. Usually, they don't read the book or really know what they're yeah. talking about. But you know, but it just sort of makes it almost an easy target. To, like, <laughs> and it's too bad you're. You know, I guess you're just missing out on. Uh, something wonderful but uh, hey you know it's your your choice yeah no and that's the thing it's, it's one of the things that drives me craziest among my colleagues um is you know with when it comes to Tolkien in particular and fantasy in general i have heard uh you know other english professors condemn it while in the same breath confessing they've never read it and i'm just thinking about almost anything else, they would be ashamed to say that. I mean, what English professor would say something like, now, you know, I've never read Lord Byron, but I think he's terrible. I mean, like, you would be ashamed to say that. I mean, perhaps you wouldn't be ashamed to say I don't read Byron, but you would, but you would say, I'm, so I'm going to reserve judgment or something. But the, 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 the sort of the, uh, the complete unselfconsciousness with which people will confess both their complete ignorance and their violent condemnation, I just, I can't even comprehend it. It, it sounds like a modern congressman. <laughs> I haven't read the bill, but I approve of it. 
<laughs> yeah, well, it, it it does seem something like some kind of a, a like a cultural party line, you know. I mean, it's it's like our cultural affiliation uh, rather than any kind of actually articulated position. And you know, this I have to say, sort of coming thinking about it from the other angle and and as sort of from the positive side, it's one of the things that I have have always really admired about Tolkien. I mean, when I first started reading Tolkien, I found, of course, I mean, I really loved his stories and I was really drawn into his books and into his whole world. But, um, the more, you know, I read of him and the more that I have read him and studied him over the years since, the more I have come to admire him for exactly how willing he was to think through those things and actually articulate them. It's one of the reasons why I love on fairy stories so much. It's, mm. you know, it's a long and rambling essay, but he, he is, he is, he is willing to ask the hard questions and really think about it, you know, there and in his poem, Mythopoeia, you know, where he's really considering, you know, willing to stop and say, okay, you know, what is this stuff really about? Why is this stuff important? Why is it in fact, not only okay, but actually, uh, actually urgent that we, you know, be willing to do this and be willing to think about these things. You know, he is, he and C.S. Lewis both were not afraid to look at these things and ask these questions that it just seems so many modern people are not even willing to ask those questions. But, but he, but he did, un, you know, he looked at this unblinkingly and, and really, uh, you know, articulated his position in ways which I think are, are really admirable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's a wonderful subject to deal with. Yeah, so many. I mean, I can think of uh, parallels in art. Um, uh, recently, was uh, having a bit of a laugh uh, because uh, you know there are incredible pretensions in modern art. It seems, uh, and yet, uh, as much as I feel, you know, the guys who do realistic work or who do kind of more traditional style art, which of course people like, they love, and they keep selling and buying this stuff. It's uh, very popular. I mean, right. Uh, yet, right. um, you know, we're, we're, there's sort of this big divide between uh, the ordinary um, person's taste and interest um, and this realm of very high abstract uh, and, and strange and wonderful um, modern art. I, I try not to judge that stuff and dismiss it this, with the same prejudice on the other side that they would dismiss uh, you know, what they considered uh, outmoded, old-fashioned or whatever uh, irrelevant styles of, of art. But uh, you know, it, you know, you, you do encounter this kind of thing, and, and the kind of uh, you know, artist statements that are uh, trotted out to explain the importance and profoundness of, of some what, of what anyone can see is <laughs> just beyond weird, and and you know, like it, it, you need to have it explained to you because there's no way your normal senses would pick up uh, or recognize <laughs> the supposed right. importance and profoundness of it. But, uh, you know, it, it is uh, the emperor's new clothes. And, I mean, I think that uh, kind of principle <laughs> uh, you know, yes, continually re- revisits and reinvents itself all the time. And it must have a sort of place in the scheme of things, I guess. I don't know. It's like we keep needing to run up the, that set of stairs and fall down at the other end again. Uh, sort of a M.C. <laughs> Escher-esque, you know, kind of procedure. <laughs> right. I don't know. Right. And I guess we need to cling to our prejudices to some extent, too. And I guess what is good is being at least willing to examine those things from time to time and, and decide, you know, if, if you're making a bit of a fool of yourself or not, uh, um, and, and you know, check yourself a, a little bit now and then. But uh, I think there's a, there's a lot of people who just kind of give up on that at, at some point and just like, you know, I'm what I am, I can't change, and, you know, I'm just going to dismiss anything I don't understand or particularly like. 
and that's yeah. that. Yeah, no, and I, I mean, I actually think back to, uh, to John's earlier discussion of a movie on Tolkien's life. You know, it's so easy when people do learn a little bit about Tolkien's life. It's easy to kind of pigeonhole Tolkien as this like crotchety old guy who hated progress and hated industrialization right. and, you know, didn't want, didn't want a refrigerator and all these other things, you know, and it's, you know, it's, it's easy to create this really sort of false image of this, you know, guy who is just like, I'm like, I am anti-progress. I am anti-technology. I am, you know, don't, don't talk to me about any of this modern junk. Exactly. But of course, he actually, he thought pretty carefully about most of that. I mean, was some of that prejudice? Yeah, I'm sure some of it was prejudice, yeah, yeah, but yeah. not all of it was, you know, and much of it, you know, people don't give him credit for actually sort of thing. There were some good reasons why, uh, he was resistant to, uh, the direction that modernity was going and resistant to the advance of industrialization. And, um, and I think that it's, it's uh, he, he really is, uh, I think a very interesting example of somebody who was both, you know, willing to, you know, as you say, Ted, to really sort of examine things and think about them, but yet also really willing to stand against them and to take some pretty unpopular stands uh, about things as a result of, you know, his his own analysis of them. And he was a human being, you know, and his, his opinions changed. He didn't always say exactly what he believed in some cases. I think right. he liked to keep people guessing as well. And that's something you sort of start to notice after a while that, you know, he's having you <laughs> on. You know, that's yeah. part of the fun. And in some cases, he would later say, I didn't say that. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, or, or times you when miss, he's clearly... What was that uh, thing, George Borsa, you misconstrued? What was that? <laughs> Mis- yeah. <something. laughs> Anyway, yeah, right. no, he invented words. Yeah, he he was misremembered. Uh, yeah. He misremembered. <laughs> yeah, I mean, would, Tolkien would would also sort of deliberately say things, kind of provocatively, and kind of overstate his case deliberately, and right. and uh, right. yeah, yeah. See if you're paying attention. This is a professor. I mean, you wouldn't know this. You know, you <laughs> you throw things out there and just see if anyone like is waking up. Or... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, I can't. I mean, I I've been at this very long, and there's still a bunch of times where students will come back to me and say, "Well, in class, you said this," and I'll be like, "I did. <laughs> why, why would I say that?" <laughs> but yeah, it happens. It happens. There's a land, there is a country Full of wonder, full of play Only children hear its music Only they have found the way There's a shore and there's a harbor That's too distant to our mind Because often now the nearest place Is the hardest one to Suspicion it's regarded It cannot melt this frost There's a light, there is a radiance And it's right before our eyes But only eyes that open Can 
Ted and I will respond together to questions from listeners and fans. Thanks for listening.